Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today, we have Eltanen Cassiani, the communications and community lead behind Monstrum 2. Thanks for joining. Hi, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. I am very glad you are here. And by the way, uh, I know you wanted to do it, but I'll just do it anyway. Uh, we're going to call you L throughout the rest of this because I know I, I'm very proud of myself that I didn't screw it up uh, because I saw the name and I was like, shit, how do you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? And I had like a mini panic attack while I was reading this. So we're good to go, though. Uh, L Cassiani. Um, <laughs> Correct. Yes. Don't worry. This is pretty standard for me. Um, there's many, many shortenings of my name. Uh, everybody calls me a different one, but nobody needs to bother themselves with the full length of it. It's, it's just too long. <laughs> well, regardless, I am glad that you are here. I'm glad that the team reached out because personally, I hadn't heard about Monstrum before this, um, but I really like the concept. I think games like this style are really great, especially now with this second one coming up. Um, but before we talk about the game, we always start these episodes getting to know the person behind the games themselves. So Elle, tell me a little bit about you know who you are, how you got into the game space, and eventually started working with Team Junkfish. Uh, well, I am a games graduate from Scotland. I uh, graduated in 2018 from Aberdeen University, which is a leading games uni in the UK. And I originally started with studying computer arts. So my degree was actually in the art side and I intended to go into the art path within the games industry. Uh, my focus was mostly on 2D art and illustration. But then after graduating, I realized that most of what I pursued and where I'd excelled was more in communications and PR. So okay. I started with pursuing alternate paths and um, I'd had a lot of networking and ended up getting in touch with one of my friends who works at Team Junkfish and still does. And she ended up getting me an interview and here I am. All right. One thing led to another. Yeah, it was a, an odd chain of command that you wouldn't expect. Um, I'd known her for about 10 years and we actually met because of anime conventions. So oh, nice. we both used to sell fan art at anime conventions. So wow. uh, basically, I ended up in the games industry because I was a giant weeb. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's, it's a good... Um... It's a good representation of not knowing really the how much value the connections that you have and you know the the different uh, walks of life that you have 
and where it's going to bring you. You know, like you could say that maybe you didn't get into that anime convention and you might not be in the games industry at all, which is a weird thing to say, right? It's very weird. Like if you had told me a decade ago, hey, your future career is going to come down to the fact that you like Kingdom Hearts and Yu-Gi-Oh fan art, I would not have believed you. But yeah, <laughs> here I am. I'm lead of comms for a company and I dressed as Seto Kaiba one time. <laughs> that, that's my career path. That is great. I love it. And and that brings us to Monstrum 2 now, right? So L, for those who don't know anything about the game, how would you describe it and why should the audience be excited for it? So Monstrum 2 is a scaling asymmetric survival horror, which is a lot of words to basically yeah. mean that up to four players can play against one other player as prisoners trying to escape a monster in a procedurally generated sea fort. And one of the things that makes it the most unique is that the fort is constantly changing and it's always different, unlike most games in this genre that have static maps. So it mm -hmm. means that there's a level of anticipation where you never exactly know where you are, or what's going on. Plus the fact that you're able to play with your friends, all unique monsters, um, which is a big difference from uh, the original Monstrum, which was single player. Right. And so I wanted to talk about that because the the original Monstrum being just that survival horror for a single player version, that doesn't seem to be in this concept, right? What was the main reason for diving into the more multiplayer side of things as opposed to saying Monstrum 2 is just going to be like a new improved version of this single player experience? The main reason was honestly our fan base. Um, after the Monstrum 1, Basically, the team had worked on Monstrum for years and working on a horror game endlessly can eventually be a bit much. So they took mm -hmm. a step away and worked on another game called Attack of the Earthlings. But for the entire time they worked on that, fans just reached out and the main demanded feature was multiplayer. Everybody wow. really wanted to be able to play Monstrum multiplayer and how much fun that would be. So after they completed Attack of the Earthlings and they were thinking, hey, what do I want to make next? Monstrum had always been on their mind and they realized maybe multiplayer is the way to go and they actually tried out um I will clarify I'm saying they because I wasn't with the team at this point <laughs> gotcha okay okay but they tried out a lot of different styles actually in Gary's mod there's a fact for you Monstrum 2 started in Gary's mod and they did wow. a load of testing uh, of different 1v1 styles or they actually did test against an AI to see if co-op against an AI would be good and eventually realized that multiple targets against an AI just became too predictable and the AI mm. could never be strong enough. Whereas being against a different player character meant that there was constantly the sense of anticipation and it was harder to figure out what they were going to be doing and how they were going to target you. And you could never truly predict another human. Um, gotcha. So we went through loads of iterations there and we ended up with the scaling asymmetric style that we've got now. Right. Okay. So I wanted to just backtrack a, a small tad on one piece that you just talked about of the the AI not being uh, well set for having everyone against an AI, right? In this game, I just want to clarify, there is no, and that's the reason why it's up to two to five players, because it's you have to have at least one monster and one survivor, correct? Yes, it's one survivor, one monster, um, because unlike other ASIMs on the market, the game and the objectives does scale so the thing everything you have to complete is different based on the player count but you do need at least two 
Gotcha. Can you elaborate a little more? Because I'd love to know kind of what difficulty looks like when you say have only one survivor versus having four others. Because I would assume that, you know, just innately having the four people at once would be obviously easier. You would think, but at the same point, it means that you can sometimes all end up almost crowded in like sheep and you can Mm -hmm. kind of get herded. The way that the game works is there's three stages. The first one, you have to power on switches by solving puzzles around the fort, which means that you've got the widest space because you have two massive open blocks of the fort to explore Mm -hmm. and do switches in. But then the next stage involves you powering on the power plant, which is in one smaller area. And then you have to um, get an escape route functioning which again is a more restricted area. So the monster is constantly closing in on you. And if there are more of you, it's easier to get caught. Whereas if there's only one of you, it is easier to hide. But at the same point, you only have two lives. So if you get caught, you're out. The way that the objective scale is, for instance, at the start with your switches, with four players, you might have, say, 10. I'm giving a, a rough number because right, right now right. balancing is in the mix is an early access title. We will change mm-hmm. things as needed. But with one player, you might only have to do four to move on to the next stage, but you don't have help. Right, right. That makes sense. And so I, I wanted to go into quickly just because for me as a person who hasn't played the original Monstrum and going into two... For those who might be more familiar with that first original title, what are some of those those improvements, some of those changes, you know, the the what have we learned along the way and taken that into Monstrum 2? What are some of those major changes other than the obvious one of, hey, it's multiplayer now? Steam no longer kills you. That's my, my favorite biggest change. One of the biggest <laughs> memes, hatred, complaints, things that gets brought up from the first game is that despite the fact that you're escaping from these monstrosities and you've survived everything else going on and you're being hunted, you could die because of steam pipes. We learned that was a bad idea. You can no longer die because of steam pipes. <laughs> well, that's all you need to know, I guess. <laughs> Um, other than that, though, we learned a lot of things about different hiding mechanics, um, about detection methods, ways that you should be able to get around the fort. We've tried to keep the same atmosphere and some of the things that define the Monstrum series to try and make sure it stays true to being Monstrum and what Monstrum is. So one of those things is Monstrum is a strictly no combat game, and mm-hmm. we have kept that because it is all about uh, stealth and the chase rather than the fight. Gotcha. Uh, another thing that we have kept is the iconic security alarm sound that haunts all of our dreams because when we're dev testing we just hear it endlessly <laughs> uh, but because it's no longer against an ai the alarms are a bit less strict and we've tried to balance that a bit better because in monster one people definitely did realize it mm. um and then we've reworked our title character our very famous character the brute and tried to give him a new Monstrum 2 style to keep him true to who he was, but make him more fun for player characters. There were some things mm-hmm. from the original Monstrum and his design that didn't translate as well to when you were playing him yourself. So hopefully the changes we've made to him, people like. Gotcha. All right, well, and then a little bit about, because in, and once again, 
uh, in Monstrum 2, there's going to be, I've seen, three different unique types of monsters. Um, can you tell me exactly, like, what are these monsters like? How are they unique? And, and what will it be? Because I, I'm thinking of, you know, the... It still is an interesting piece in my mind if the other four can't attack of, like, how strong are these monsters, per se? Sure. So before I go through each of the monsters... Mm -hmm. While you can't fight back as a prisoner, there are ways to evade, which is what can help. So you have hiding spots that can completely take you off of monsters' radars. You have things like fire extinguishers to create smoke screens that you can escape through. You have cameras to blind them. You just can't physically harm them. Gotcha. Then for the monsters, we've tried to make sure that they're balanced and that they all have a unique set of skills, but they also all have their own limitations as well. First mm -hmm. off, you have the Brute, who is our character returning from Monstrum 1, although it is a different Brute because this game is set in the future. Monstrum 1 was set in about the 1970s. This is set in the 2020s um, oh. and it's based yeah. on a sea fort and it shows a little bit of lore here for you that the monsters are human experiments and so this is a oh. different brute but from the same experimentations oh, very cool there's your lore explanation for why he looks different <laughs> <laughs> i love it so the brute is your big heavyweight character he's very strong he can smash through walls he can break items one of his skills is that he can smash into the floor and create a shockwave that causes prisoners to slow down when they're running past him and that shatters all the items around him which makes it easier for him to get through areas uh, he's okay. also able to charge after prisoners really fast but because of his mass it's hard to control that if you can hit prisoners you do damage to them and you slow them down again and he can let out this big echoing roar that causes shockwaves around the fort and allows him to track people via their vibrations. Oh, nice. You then have the Bagra, which is the complete opposite and is your speedy, stealthy monster. So the Bagra is purposefully very dark and has a sniff-based skill to be able to pick up on people's scent trails and figure out where they are. And because the Bagra is quadruped, it can fit through crouch points and various other areas that the Brute couldn't get through. Because while the Brute is limited by being this big hulkering mass, the Bagra has more maneuverability. It can also climb on ceilings and hide. And if it lunges from the ceilings, it can one hit kill you. But when it's on the floor, while it's really fast, it's weak. So it takes mm. three or four swipes to be able to kill someone because it doesn't do much damage unless it gets a good lunge on you. Right. And then we have our newest revealed one, which we only revealed last week, which is the Malacosm, mm -hmm. who is based on intelligence. And so the Malacosm's whole thing is that he can teleport. Then you're able to lay traps around the fort that if prisoners get close to it will do damage to them and it will also ping you that a prisoner is near them. And you can then mm -hmm. teleport across to your traps across the map and get closer to them instantly. And you can also take control of prisoners' eyesight for a temporary time to be able to look through their eyes and see what they're seeing and be able to try and figure out where they're hiding. But huh. the Malcosm's also very tall and doesn't have the maneuverability of the ceilings like the Bagra or the charging of the Brute. So you have to rely on the teleporting and strategy to be able to move around as well. Wow. It's uh, it's a lot that that's going into this. I really like it, uh, especially the different play styles. Uh, I'm sure that 
many people will all have their own favorite. Um, I kind of would, at least personally, just thinking about myself, I would probably want the speedy one. Um, but I'm the exact think, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure that uh, someone could be quite a nuisance on that teleporting one. Oh, completely. It's hilarious when you see the team playing it. We test the game constantly within our team, obviously. And mm -hmm. we've had our closed beta and fans testing it. And so many people already have debates being like, oh, the Bagra sucks. Brute's the only good way to play. You can't ever kill as the Bagra. And then you mm -hmm. get players like me that are lethal as the Bagra. But if you put me on the Malacosm, I'm completely useless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, yeah, everyone has their own play style. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, now that we've kind of talked about the monsters and the things that are going to attack you for that, let's talk a little bit about kind of the objective about escaping, right? You mentioned that these, these worlds are, are changing, uh, the, the map is, is this in real time that these are changing or is this changing every time you play the game? Every time you play the game. So when you okay. load in the map, uh, it will procedurally generate a map based off of our set of rules that we are looking to expand even further throughout early access. So as it stands right now, what will spawn in is one of two escape routes. So that will either be the helicopter or the submarine. You'll okay. also get the power plant. And then on top of that, you will get two what we call super blocks, which are basically giant structures of the fort that have different themes. So there are 12 of them in total. And for instance, you'll have morgue or examination or residential because they're all themed areas of what would have been a lived in sea fort. Um, and then within each of these blocks, your item spawns will be randomized. The layout of the rooms is randomized. What puzzles and switches there are to solve changes every game. And we're looking to expand all of that even further with different fort layouts and additional super block options and loads of other stuff throughout early access so as every time you play even though it's technically only one map unlike other games that have a static map where you memorize it really easily this time you don't exactly know what you're going to get because everything always changes right and can you elaborate a little bit more on like what those puzzles or those items are that you're getting uh, maybe like an example or two yeah, of course. So you have the defensive items you can collect that I mentioned before, like the fire extinguisher and the camera. But you mm -hmm. also have a lot of uh, ones you need to actually complete the objectives in game. So, for instance, some of the puzzles are just as simple as find a fuse box dispenser, collect a fuse and put it into the correct switch that needs a fuse to be powered. But then you'll also have things like the tape that you can use to cover up security cameras so you don't get caught, but you can also use it to fix sparking wiring that power on switches because the electrics on it were ripped. Or bolt cutters to break chains off of fences and that are wrapped around switch areas you need to get to, and sledgehammers to break crates and floor panels and to get through broken doorways. All that kind of thing. Wow. A lot going on in this game, I can see. Um, now, as far as the, the people themselves, right, the survivors, um, I know that there's different classes or so of these monsters. Is there any difference between the survivors or are they more or less the, you're going to have the same general ability, but it's more on those items that you get? We are purposefully not putting in skill trees onto the prisoners because from looking at similar titles and other things on the market, consistently the most balancing issues come from things like perk trees. 
especially mm -hmm. because the longer that the game goes on and has a longer lifespan, players end up having played it for hundreds of hours and they have all these perks and then it's completely inaccessible to new players. Instead, right. we want the focus to be on the procedural generation, the prisoner's challenge, and them being good is learning the progen and learning what they've got to do, and that's their advantage. So all of the prisoners remain the same. The only change you'll be able to do will be cosmetic. Right. So I did notice that, and there are cosmetics for both the monster and the survivors. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Uh, monsters will have full body cosmetics, so all of their cosmetics will be full skins that change them completely from head to toe. Whereas prisoners have a range of prisoner options, uh, all of them listed completely just in one list. We don't have them split by gender and we're aiming mm -hmm. to have a range of different races and add more threat production. And each prisoner will be able to have a full body skin, so an outfit and an accessory, like a head accessory, applied at this time. And we're looking to add in even more customization options down the line. Awesome. And how would you unlock something like this? Is this just a more or less keep playing and you get some form of currency and then you're able to cash that in? Is it you have to achieve some type of milestone as in like kill five survivors, you know, win five times? What does that look like as far as unlocking things? So we have a few different methods. One of them is a level XP progression system. The easiest way to explain it would be if you've played Fall Guys. Um, mm -hmm. As you play and gain experience time, you go up levels within seasons. Those give you rewards. There right. is going to be rewards for that. There will also be a shop in which you'll earn credits as you play. You can buy them. And there will be credit packs that you can buy with real world currency if you want to just buy a skin instead of having to earn it. But all of our microtransactions in game are going to be purely for cosmetics. We really, really are against having buy to win gameplay or loot boxes. Right. Okay. Well, I like that style. If you really, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where if you, you know, you put so much time into a game and you really want to give more support, it's the option is there where you can spend real money, but if not, you know, you could also just keep playing the game and eventually you'll unlock it. Yeah, exactly. That's basically what I did with Among Us because I just, I love the devs so much. I know a few of the team. I think that they're so sweet. And I was like, this game is so sweet and it costs barely anything. For a lot of people, it's free and I want a hamster. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to buy a hamster. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that do that for, for many different things out there just because at that point it's like, you know, I could have spent what, like 60, $70 us dollars on another game that would have lasted me only, you know, 10 hours as opposed to certain games that are more, uh, have that evergreen quality to them. And you just keep, playing and playing and playing you can spend hundreds and hundreds of hours and it's like all right you know what i'll give you a couple of bucks like why not right that's the hope anyway <laughs> uh so let's talk about the actual matches themselves now from like a holistic pr uh, perspective when you're playing these games what is the the obviously the the objective for the individuals is to escape right what does that look like from a time frame as far as the the game lengths and i know this is going to be a little different because if you lose it obviously be shorter or you know maybe they might drag on but what's like the average length that you've seen from play testing i would probably say the average is about 20 minutes once players learn the game 
one of the things about Monstrum 2 is that because it's procedurally generated, it does have kind of a skill curve. So quite mm -hmm. often when players first join, prisoners will be being like, this is impossible, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's because they haven't figured out the puzzles yet and everything's changing and so it's harder for them to learn. But right. once they've played a few games, prisoners catch on and that's when things start to get really competitive. And that's part of what keeps our skill leveled with the monsters and stops us having as bad balancing issues. But as players get into it and end up at a more fair level against each other, the I would say about 20 minutes, but it can be shorter because the way that it works is as you complete each stage, you get more time on your timer. If you run out of time, you lose. So if gotcha. prisoners really mess up the first stage of the game, they could be dead within the first 10 minutes. Okay. All right. So it's a bit of a race against the clock then as well. Yes, not only do you have to escape from a monstrosity and try and somehow repair an escape route because you just know how to function and run a submarine, you don't question <laughs> it, but you also have to be a, an invisible timer. <laughs> Sounds stressful. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it's not me. I know, yeah, right? As long as it's a virtual person. Um, yes. <laughs> let's let's uh, wrap this up a little bit with a, a one of our final questions. So I see that this is in early access. Um, I know this is in your Steam page, but I always like to ask uh, just what was the, the main idea for going into early access for the team? One of the biggest things is that community involvement is so important for us. Obviously, as the community lead, this is a major aspect of my job. And right. one of the things that I spend so much of my time doing is getting our community involved and trying to get their input to make the game what they want and to make sure it reflects what the players want. And so we've already done a closed alpha in which we had fans in our Discord giving us active input. And then again, with a closed beta, we have a group of focus testers that are about 10 of our most active fans that I've gotten involved, that have been testing the game for weeks for us just now before early access. And we knew the game was at a playable point. It was at a point where it's playable, it's enjoyable, it might not be feature complete, but it's fun. And so right. we wanted to put that out and be able to give it to the people that it matters most to. And so then as the game shapes, they can have a direct input into it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that the community is very important in a lot of these, uh, especially for, for indie games. Um, but like just in general, there's so much value that comes from listening to the people who are actually playing your game. They're the ones who are going to give you that feedback of what they really want. Exactly. I I feel completely biased because I am the community lead, but I love our community so much. I'm so, so proud to, despite horror and multiplayer games, both have a certain reputation for the kind of community that they have online. And it's not a very positive one. Right. And yet the words that constantly get thrown around about our community is wholesome, welcoming, positive. It, like everybody seems to love being a part of it. And they just are so passionate about Monstrum and the series and they want to see it do well. And so I want to make sure that they get that. So me and my community team, we spend so much time speaking to them, getting their input and putting that back and because things our entire development team is in our discord our programmers and our art team are constantly interacting and seeing their input as well and it definitely has reflected every aspect of our design that is amazing well congratulations on having such a wholesome community that is it's quite a challenge to actually keep up especially in an online world um but you're telling that, me 
<laughs> I know. But that being said, uh, let's wrap this up with some advice because I always like asking this for any of the people that come on, uh, depending on, you know, wherever you're at in this indie space, you always have, I'm sure, some nugget of of information that is useful to those who are out there, whether they are, you know, seasoned veterans in the game or whether it's someone who is just looking to to start working on their first indie game project. For those listening who might be interested in something like that, uh, what are some tips or some advice that you've learned along the way from, you know, your your journeys from just dressing up at anime conventions all the way to now <laughs> being a community lead uh, for, for a... Uh, uh, an actual video game that is coming out like so soon. What is it? What has it been like? So I have two major key bits of advice that are technically not related to any specific skill you'll ever do. They're not okay. learn this software. They're not, Oh, this is the coding language you need. They're not this. You need this course, all of that. You can learn down the line, but the two major things that I see reflected constantly is one, networking networking is so important and that sounds terrifying and i'm not talking sit and obsessively add everyone on linkedin and force yourself into every conversation at events the key to networking in the games industry that people talk about a lot but yet gets overlooked because it sounds ridiculous is twitter almost the entire industry just lives on twitter these days and Mm -hmm. Most people I know have gotten their recent job offers or connections or experiences. All of the opportunities are through Twitter. All of mine have been through Twitter. So (laughs) just get on Twitter, start interacting with devs, find indie devs you like, people that you look up to and respect, people in the industry that you think are doing interesting work and interact with them respond to what you think is cool start putting your stuff up and trying to get their opinion take part in game spaces like uh pitch your game which runs every month and Mm -hmm. discord servers and the more active you are there people will start to know you and it goes a hell of a long way and my other key bit of advice kind of contradicts this but (sighs) kind of doesn't but it's unplug one of the hardest things about being in this industry is because it's digital and because it's such a modern industry you're constantly online you're constantly expected to be there and indie indie fans and game fans in general are very passionate Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can get a bit much because they kind of expect you to deliver everything at the fastest pace possible and also to be available 24 7 and it can get a bit stressful Taking time away from the internet, from networking, from working on your game will make you coming back and working on your game better in the end. You need to give yourself mental health time and it will be the most important thing you ever do. I love it. Two very important pieces of information. For those listening, Monstrum 2 will be out in early access on Steam starting January 28th. So by the time you're listening to this, it should be already available. Be sure to head over to their Steam page, check it out. Um, Once again, El, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to speak to you. 